rigged election, uh, almost certainly, unless Trump wins, uh, in which case um, uh, I, I shudder to think what four more years of this would be like. Ooh, I felt that. All right, we need to grab Dad now. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening to Let's Talk About Race. I like to end the show by saying every day and in every way, we hope you agitate for social change. Thank you for listening. For more information on Let's Talk About Race, visit us on social media. We're on Facebook at Let's Talk Race 1 or check us out on Instagram at LT. AR show or www.letstalkrace.net. The following program has been produced by Grassroot News Northwest. You are listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM. <sighs> In to Cubby Cushy, Cubby Cush, Tuesday nights on KBU. Two hours of global base with an emphasis on South Asia and the South Asian diaspora, and an even more special emphasis on the Punjabi diaspora. Hosted every Tuesday, 10 to midnight, by the incredible kid. This ain't world music, it's birth of a new world music. Studios of KPFK Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com. In today's news headlines, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has moved to create a panel that could determine President Donald Trump's fitness for office. Joined by Maryland Congressman Jamie Raskin, the two Democrats announced on Friday that they would create a commission to, quote, help ensure effective and uninterrupted leadership 
in the White House. Raskin and Pelosi explained that the process would include a medical diagnosis of the president. The legislation um, sets up a process by which Congress, through concurrent votes in the House and the Senate, could direct the commission to conduct a medical exam of the president. And that would include whatever the members of the commission think is necessary to determine whether or not there's an incapacity. If the president refuses and the president would have a right to refuse, that could be taken into account uh, by the commission, which would have to rule based on all of the other evidence that it has. Again, this isn't about uh, any judgment anybody has about somebody's behavior. This is about a diagnosis, uh, a professional medical diagnosis. That's House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and before her, Representative Jamie Raskin on Friday morning announcing their plan to create a commission based on the 25th Amendment to determine the president's fitness for office. The Washington Post explained, quote, under the 25th Amendment, a president could be declared, quote, disabled and involuntarily removed from office by joint agreement of the vice president and a majority of the cabinet, something that has never happened. Meanwhile, Trump, who by all accounts should still be in the process of recovery from the coronavirus, has claimed that he is in perfect health and is not contagious. In fact, he expects to be out in public by Saturday for a rally in Florida. In a memo published on Thursday, Trump's physician, Dr. Sean Conley, claimed that by Saturday he could return safely to public life 10 days after his positive COVID test. Experts have said that the president's treatment with a very strong steroid and with experimental antibody medication indicate that his illness was likely serious and that any return to public life ought to come only after a negative COVID-19 result conducted using a very accurate laboratory test. After the Commission on Presidential Debates decided to switch next week's debate into a virtual event as a precaution, Trump simply pulled out, leaving the plans in disarray. Indicating that Trump fears having his mic cut off in a virtual environment, he told Fox News, quote, That's not what debating is all about. You sit behind the computer and do a debate. It's ridiculous. And then they cut you off whenever they want. Trump has vainly attempted to remain in the public eye with less than a month before the election by appearing on as many favorable phone interviews as possible. Among his virtual appearances over the past few days was on right-wing shock jock Rush Limbaugh's radio program. Trump had surprised everyone by giving Limbaugh the Freedom Medal earlier this year. On Limbaugh's show this week, Trump claimed without evidence that there was a cure for COVID-19 even though no nation, agency, lab, drug company, or doctor says there is a cure. I'm telling you, we have a cure. More than just a therapeutic, we have a cure. But Meanwhile, Academy Award-winning filmmaker Alex Gibney is releasing an explosive new documentary called Totally Under Control, exposing the Trump administration's failures on the pandemic. Here is an excerpt of the film trailer. We, the scientists, knew what to do for the pandemic response. The plan was in front of us, but leadership would not do it. It is time to lay our careers on the line and push back. It's clear the United States did not perform to the best of its ability with the coronavirus. wrong for us. The truth is that political leaders caused avoidable death and destruction. The scientists sounded the alarm every day. The U.S. government was doing nothing. One day it's like a miracle. It will disappear. 
It'll be wonderful. It'll be a gift from heaven. It's complete He has no idea what he's talking about. That's a clip from the new documentary Totally Under Control by Academy Award-winning filmmaker Alex Gibney. Polls continue to show Trump struggling to surmount his rival Joe Biden's lead in swing states. But now even reliably Republican voting states show a very close race. Arizona Republican Jeff Flake, who was a GOP senator and who is now supporting Biden, told the New York Times there are limits to what people can take with the irresponsibility, the untruthfulness, just the whole persona. Older voters are turning away from Trump in large numbers as well, even though their age demographic tends to back Republicans. The latest Reuters Ipsos polls show that among older Americans, 47% say they're voting for Biden on November 3rd, while 46% back Trump. In a thinly veiled attempt to use public funds to boost his re-election, Trump is now demanding his cabinet scramble to fulfill a last-minute promise to send seniors $200 drug discount cards before the election. Politico reported on the $8 billion plan that would use funds from the Medicare Trust Fund and distribute cards that bear Trump's name. Representative Frank Pallone, the chair of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, called the move, quote, a shameless stunt that steals billions from Medicare in order to fund a legally dubious scheme that's clearly intended to benefit President Trump's campaign right before Election Day. More details have emerged about the FBI arrests in a plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Thirteen people have been arrested, all of them reportedly white men. Whitmer gave a press conference reflecting on the incident and slamming Trump for stoking hatred and division. Our head of state has spent the past seven months denying science, ignoring his own health experts, stoking distrust, fomenting anger, and giving comfort to those who spread fear and hatred and division. That's Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer at a press conference after the arrest of more than a dozen men who had plotted to kidnap her. After going back and forth repeatedly on whether he would support COVID economic relief legislation, Trump has now decided to pursue a second round of $1,200 stimulus checks for all Americans. The White House made clear that the president was interested only in a standalone bill approving a new round of checks. Experts concluded from the first round of checks that, quote, the data shows that targeting payments to households with low cash levels or lower income would result in more spending and therefore greater economic stimulus. In other news, New York Attorney General Letitia James is investigating a massive tax break that the president received just a few years ago. In exchange for agreeing to preserve a forest behind his New York mansion, Trump received a $21 million tax break based on what appears to be an overvaluation of his land. According to the Washington Post, the valuation has now become a focal point of what could be one of the most consequential investigations facing President Trump as he heads into the election. In other news, a former Trump mega-donor named Elliot Broidy just pled guilty in a federal criminal charge involving foreign interference. The Daily Beast, which reported the story, explained that the charge was, quote, over an alleged scheme to influence the Trump administration on behalf of a Malaysian businessman at the center of a massive international money laundering conspiracy. Broidy is charged with a violation of the Foreign Agents Registration Act and becomes one of an ever-increasing circle of Trump associates charged with crimes. And finally, the Nobel Peace Prize for 2020 was just announced 
and it has been awarded to the World Food Programme. The United Nations Agency has ensured food aid for many nations on the brink of starvation through a combination of war and the coronavirus pandemic. And that does it for our news headlines. We'll be back with the rest of the show after this break. KPFK Pacifica Radio, this is Rising Up at Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica Radio stations and affiliates nationwide. It has been months since the CARES Act expired, leaving millions of unemployed Americans rudderless and with no plan from the federal government to aid them in making ends meet. The Trump administration has flip-flopped repeatedly over supporting an extension to jobless benefits and or a second round of $1,200 stimulus checks, while the Republican Party has remained in limbo, unsure of what their president actually wants. The House of Representatives has already passed a new $2.2 trillion bill to continue benefits, but with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell more interested in packing the courts with conservatives instead of ensuring families survive, there's little chance it will pass. Trump, who has been revealed to have paid little to nothing in taxes, has benefited from socialized medicine at Walter Reed Hospital and $100,000 worth of cutting-edge treatments for his coronavirus affliction. He's now dipping into the Medicare Trust Fund to send $200 drug discount cards with his name on it to older voters ahead of the election. I'm joined now by Karen Dolan, fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies and the project director of their Criminalization of Race and Poverty Project. Welcome to the program, Karen. Thank you for having me, Sonali. So before we get into this crazy plan to scramble to send drug discount cards to uh, elderly you know, folks, to seniors and, and voters. Let's talk about the, the broader context of how we have a president and a party who has really you know, seemed to tell Americans, you're on your own. After the CARES Act expired um, and you know, even the PPP loans have dried up, does the country really have an actual plan for what people who've lost jobs or are struggling because of the pandemic for what they can do? Currently, there is no plan. So there is no plan uh, that's agreed to or even taken up by the Republican-controlled Senate. And as we know, erratically, recently, President Trump stopped all negotiations between the White House and the House leadership, as well as between the House leadership and any potential negotiations with the Senate. The the White House had been in constant uh, recent communication with House Speaker Pelosi on yet a second HEROES Act that the House had, had passed, and nothing had been done. The first one was passed all the way back in May to help uh, keep Americans going through the expiration of the CARES Act. 
but the Senate refused to take it up, so did the White House. And it's only recently the White House reengaged through Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, but uh, President Trump took a abrupt halt, ordered a halt to those neg- negotiations, and then did a, a backflip on that um, somewhat when the stock market took a deep dive in response to that strange news. So currently there is no safety net, there is no relief uh, for the millions of Americans that are suffering. I mean, it's just quite remarkable. And some of this, uh, you know, these details that we've just been talking about may change um, in the next few days. We really don't know. The other part of it is that we know that the economy needs an infusion of cash, right? We have, unfortunately, a consumer-based economy. And so when money was put into people's pockets, they spent it. Even more than the $1,200 stimulus payments, wasn't there information from economists that showed that unemployed Americans who got that $600 of benefits in the CARES Act spent much of it, and it was a boon to the economy. I mean, it buoyed businesses. Well, that's right. So because both the House and the Senate did act rather swiftly in March and passed what we call the CARES Act, that was able to keep both small businesses and families and people afloat uh, as the economy closed, closed down. And what's really interesting about that is because of that aid and because of the fact that we had gone into the pandemic with such a such a wide inequality and such structural poverty, that extra aid, even though it was a few more hundred dollars in people's pockets, that actually the, the poverty rate ticked down at the beginning of the pandemic because government assistance that should have always been there um, in in absence of real structural change, that was there to to provide a safety net for people, and it also was a boon to the economy. But as soon as the CARES Act provisions uh, ran out, you saw just terrible hardship come rushing back. Small businesses closing, uh, restaurants closing permanently, you know, the millions of people who had lost their jobs, only half of which have come back, and people falling in falling back lower, deeper into poverty, and also experiencing food insecurity, so that we have one in three children in this United States of America, one in three children living in families that are either food insecure or housing insecure. So it's a very precarious situation, and this has been allowed to go on for months. Now, meanwhile, the Trump administration, as I mentioned earlier, is uh, moving to put um, money of a tie of, of some, some sort into the hands of a very specific demographic. Political reported, based on documents that they obtained, that the Trump administration has ordered its agencies to scramble to send $200 drug discount cards to seniors to help pay for medication, and they're using $8 billion from the Medicare trust funds to do so, and they want it before November 3rd. There are a number of polls showing Trump is struggling with the demographic that Republicans have traditionally relied on, that the elder, uh, senior voters are sort of evenly split between Joe Biden and Trump. And this just seems like a very thinly veiled attempt to win over votes because he wants his name on those Discount cards. Karen, what is this? Has this even been done before, this sort of thing? No, and it's very, uh, it's a very dubious proposition legally. 
there doesn't seem to be a legal basis for it, um, nor a way to pay for it. So initially, this was a scheme hatched up by Trump and Mark Meadows and some White House officials to have pharmaceutical companies pay for this campaign scheme. And Big Pharma balked at the idea of paying for a campaign stunt, and especially one that doesn't change the structural problems or produce a long-term solution for the crisis of high drug prices, especially for seniors in this country. So what the administration was left with doing is to rob Peter to pay Paul and to take almost, as you say, $8 billion out of the Medicare trust fund, which is something that um, the head of the Medicare and Medicaid services, who's behind this now, had said that she would never do. It's a highly unsound practice. Uh, and it's not clear that there's legal justification that they are trying to fit this into a waiver about testing whether or not seniors will take their drugs more uh, readily if they have this Trump gift card in their pocket. It's quite incredible to see this. They want his name on it. They want it by election day. There's not even an attempt to make it appear as though it's not political. And most importantly, this is tax money, right? These are tax dollars paid for by all of us. I mean, the Medicare trust fund presumably is funded by tax dollars. That's right. And the Medicare trust fund actually is even in a worse position right now because Trump also passed uh, by fiat that government workers would not pay payroll taxes uh, till the end of this year. And that, of course, is what funds the Medicare uh, trust fund. So we're really in, in risky territory right now, and this is supposed to, one, as you say, appeal to seniors who he has lost. He's down by 27% in polls of senior support, which he had had in 2016. So he's desperate to regain uh, senior voters. And, and also, we're in the, he had made a, a promise to um, lower prescription drug costs. He was not able to get a plan passed for that. And at the same time, he has tried vigorously to end the Affordable Care Act now with the Supreme Court actually hearing that case with the strongly conservative court in November. So we're in a very precarious position, not to mention we're in the, in the middle of the pandemic. So there's no way in which this can be viewed as anything other than a, a blatant um, political stunt, campaign stunt, that does nothing but hurt seniors and all of us. And didn't Trump promise to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act? We were, we've been told now for four years that he's going to have this great plan. He has a plan. It's coming. It's going to be unveiled. And here we are four years after his first election. And where's the plan? He was asked about it at the debate. He, his vice president, was asked about it at, at the debate. They did not have good answers for it. It seems as though he's just trying to rebrand the remnants of the Affordable Care Act as, as Trump Care. 
Well, that's right. So he has vaguely some sign that says America First Health Plan, and this campaign scheme of a $200 Trump card in, in the pockets of some seniors, which, by the way, will cost 50, over 50 billion, just to, uh, I'm sorry, over 50 million just to produce, and another 20 million to distribute letters telling about them being produced. Wow. So just think about the cost of this stunt beyond even the $200 cards. And also, Trump, you may remember in September passed a very puzzling um, executive order declaring that pre-existing conditions uh, will not be a barrier to health coverage, neglecting to say that we already have the law of the land, the Affordable Care Act, already accomplishes that. So the very health law that he ha is dismantling already has the provision that uh, existing pre-existing conditions will not be a barrier to health coverage. Whereas his executive order has no legal standing, there's no way to enforce that. That also needs congressional action. And we have an existing law already on the books that provides for that, which he's dismantling. It's a very, uh, there's no way to make sense of it. So little makes sense these days. And of course, uh, coming just before uh, that debate and, and right after he signed that executive order was the New York Times reporting on his own taxes, which I feel like needs to be part of this conversation because you and I pay taxes into the Treasury, uh, but our laws have been written for billionaires like Trump to pay disproportionately fewer taxes. The tax reform bill, that so-called reform bill that he signed into law with the Republicans made it easier for billionaires to, to get write-offs and save money. And now we know that in the first two years of his presidency, he paid $750 in tax. Meanwhile, as president, he has used so much of our tax dollars for security for his golf trips. And now, of course, gotten treatment at a top government-funded, taxpayer-funded hospital with cutting-edge experimental drugs. And that treatment, we are seeing reports, have cost $100,000 of American tax dollars, which of course is likely not available to the rest of us if we catch COVID, right? Like this needs to be part of the conversation, I feel. That's an extremely important point. So essentially, Trump is alive because of our taxpayer dollars, because of a socialized medicine plan that is not available to us medications that aren't available to us and care for which he has not contributed in, in most of, in 10 of the last 15 years, he's not paid a dime in taxes. And as you said last year, only 750. So this is a, a real uh, deep inequity. And at the same time, as you mentioned, billionaires have actually gotten richer during the pandemic. So the people who have who are in the best position have just gotten more secure, while the rest of us have been plunged into deeper instability. So the wide inequalities, racial inequalities, gender inequalities, inequalities that hurt transgender people, mothers, children, these gaps, these gaps of inequality have just become gaping chasms. And Trump has certainly benefited personally uh, from these kinds of inequalities. And in a way that's, 
I don't know how to describe it other than cruel, except that it is just a sheer power grab, um, denying this kind of stability to the rest of us. And he's told us not to be afraid of the coronavirus because, of course, the message that has been given to us all along is wear your mask or don't wear your mask, you know, socially distance or not, go to school, whether it's safe or not, open your businesses, whether it's safe or not. So we've so all of that is consistent with Trump's cavalier attitude toward a disease that has now killed well over 200,000 Americans. Now, in the going back to the, the fact that the federal government and the Republican-controlled Senate has essentially abandoned the economy as it is for ordinary people. Um, There's discussion around whether or not to have unemployment benefits or whether or not to have the $1,200 stimulus checks. But what about state budgets? Is there any discussion to fill the massive and yawning gaps for state budgets that are opening up because revenue is drying up uh, due to the pandemic, which you know, the, this is money I imagine that health and safety, public health and safety that the state funds relies on. That's exactly right. So the Democratic House proposals, again, that the first HEROES Act passed the House back in May and the second one in September, both of which the Republican-controlled Senate has not agreed to take up, they did provide funding, critically needed funding, for state and local governments. State and local governments fund education, teachers, first responders, healthcare, uh, any number of uh, services that are critical for our health and well-being of our children, our families, our education system, and those have just been decimated and it's really unconscionable to understand that that's one of the major reasons that Trump is a, is opposed to a relief package because it would go to fund teachers and first responders uh, and, and, and critical services in any state which happens to have a democratic governor. And when you think about the implications of that politicizing just our basic needs, it's hard to understand. So we have a situation now where Americans are struggling. There's an election coming. Um, The aid to Americans appears to be based on a political, uh, how it might politically benefit Trump, that that's all part of it. Uh, the Democrats only have so much power because they only control the House and can't actually get any legislation passed. Um, and so, so much depends on this election. And I'm wondering, Karen, if you think that Americans are aware, because we're also awash in misinformation, and we have at the head of the nation a master manipulator, a master propagandist. All of the issues that you and I are discussing, are they apparent to Americans? who support Trump, or do they just believe what he says when he tells them that he is going to make sure their pre-existing conditions aren't a cause for discrimination, that it's because of him that they might get a drug discount card, and that, you know, the, 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 the awareness of the hypocrisy from the Trump administration, from the Republican Party, seems to not be as well covered as we might like. I mean, even though Trump is trailing in the polls, the fact that he has any support at all at this point is shocking. 
I think that's right. I do think that uh, his support is his support, uh, and they are not going to move regardless of what he does, regardless of how many loved ones they lose to the virus or to hunger or to homelessness. Uh, and I, I think that that's true. I think it's also true that uh, the majority, the strong majority of people in this country do see the cruel nature of his policies. And I'm not saying this from the perspective of partisanship. The Institute for Policy Studies is nonpartisan. I'm saying it from the position of uh, good policy, just policy, respect for human life and decency. And I think most of the American people can see that those are lacking in the policies coming out of this White House and, and, being, and, and the relief packages being blocked by the Senate or ignored by the Senate. So I, for those who are able to look objectively at what's happening, I think that it is clear to them. And don't forget that over 210,000 American lives have been lost in this country, over a million around the world. And we all, I believe, most of us know somebody who's either been infected, sickened, or died from this virus. And it's a very serious public health concern, not to mention that all of our lives have been upended. And we have about half of Americans reporting a significant um, financial hardship as a result of the pandemic, either health-related or economy-related. So this is very prevalent. People understand it on a deep level, and I believe that most people in this country do see that the policies from the White House have only made this crisis worse. Karen, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. We'll post a link to the Institute for Policy Studies' website from our site. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Sanaa. It's my pleasure. My guest has been Karen Dolan, a fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies. She's also the project director of their Criminalization of Race and Poverty Project. We've been discussing how Trump is refusing to act to help Americans through the economic impact of the pandemic. I'm Sonali Kohatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com, where you can sign up for our daily newsletter. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify. KPFK Pacifica Radio, this is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica radio stations and affiliates nationwide. 
President Donald Trump's tenure has been marked by an unusual proliferation of conspiracy theories entering into the mainstream, from Pizzagate to the Parkland shooting, the coronavirus, and now QAnon. This shouldn't surprise us, considering that Trump, one of the most enthusiastic promoters, is one of the most enthusiastic promoters of the conspiracy theory that Barack Obama was not a natural-born citizen. He arrived in the White House, elevating the art of conspiracy-mongering to a dangerous level. My guest is T. Krulos, a freelance journalist and author from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. His previous books, Heroes in the Night, Monster Hunters, and Apocalypse Any Day Now, explored the driving beliefs and lives of the people who choose to reject accepted reality and substitute their own. He now joins me to discuss his newest book. It's called American Madness, the story of the phantom patriot and how conspiracy theories hijacked American consciousness. Welcome to the program, T. Thanks for having me. So let's first start where your book begins, which is with this conspiracy that I hadn't really uh, heard that much about. And it goes back in history. And that is um, this uh, really interesting gathering that you point out uh, that famous people from all over the world had historically participated in called the Bohemian Grove and how you were approached by a man who decided that he had infiltrated this particular club. Tell me about this. Sure. So the Bohemian Grove is a sort of retreat for some of the world's most powerful and wealthy men. Uh, it's run by the Bohemian Club, and they have an office in San Francisco. And uh, the members have included several U.S. presidents, politicians, CEOs, they meet in this um, secret location in the Redwood Forest, and they pretty much party for two weeks in July. And it's always been sort of a part of conspiracy lore because um, they do this rather bizarre ritual in front of the statue of an owl. So I was contacted way back in 2010 by a man named Richard McCaslin, and he told me that he had raided the Bohemian Grove in 2002 um, and he had a heavily armed standoff with police there and was arrested. And he had adopted this sort of conspiracy commando persona, the Phantom Patriot. So after he contacted me, he just became my guide through this strange conspiracy world that had all these unusual twists and turns. And then, you know, over the last few years, I noticed that this story was becoming very topical as far as a lot of these ideas that he told me that would be considered to be quite fringe were uh, gaining a lot of traction and being talked about. So this is the this is just one example of many that you uh, cover in your book, and I'm wondering if you feel that this is an example of the ways in which people have glommed onto various conspiracies over the years, because there is a kernel of truth, and then there's a whole lot of extrapolation, if you will. Yes. And the Bohemian Grove is a, a good example of that. Uh, it is a real place. Um, it exists and it does have membership of some very powerful people. And they do this thing in front of the statue of the owl. So all of that is true, but uh, conspiracy theorists have added a lot of details like 
They're possibly sacrificing live people in front of this owl, uh, maybe even children. And that's, you know, there's sort of a, a sex slave dungeon in there. And all of these nefarious spots are being hatched. So a uh, conspiracy theory a lot of times is this really an exaggeration of stuff that's true and also kind of a way to sometimes attack people that you don't agree with. One of the most enduring conspiracy theories has been around the shooting of John F. Kennedy, President John F. Kennedy. Um, and this is another one that you tackle in your book. And I'm wondering how this particular uh, incident that looms so large in the American consciousness really exemplifies the distrust of what politicians even today casually use and officials use uh, this term, the deep state, right? That there's this shadowy um, uh, force within American intelligence agencies that are controlling the rest of us. Again, a small kernel of truth hidden in there somewhere. Well, yeah, the JFK assassination, I really think, is the birth of modern conspiracy theory. I mean, we've certainly had conspiracy theories going back to the dawn of time, I'm sure. But um, it really impacted people so deeply. Uh, I've talked to a lot of people from that generation who remember very vividly where they were when they got the news that JFK had been shot. And um, conspiracy theory really is a way that we sometimes cope with terrible things that happen because we can't uh, believe that this tragedy has happened. And so we want to assign it a plot of these sinister characters who must be responsible for it. So, and in the case of the JFK, I mean, there was a lot of confusing things going on that day in uh, Dallas. And there was a lot of parties who, you know, had a reason that they might want to kill him. So that really bred a lot of speculation of, was it the CIA, was it Cuba, or was it some combination of different forces? You know, maybe LBJ was involved somehow. Um, so that's really the origin of where a lot of this has gone. And then, of course, most recently, or not most recently, I should say more recently, because there have been so many conspiracies since, uh, is the 9-11 Truth Movement. And I'm wondering if uh, this this was one that had this unusual um, coming together of the fringe right and the fringe left that, uh, and I'm wondering if, if, if in your study of conspiracy theories and those who adopt them and believe in them, if there is any particular part of the political spectrum that they tend to fall on? I found that uh, conspiracy theories are used by the left and, and the right. Um, you know, right now, the climate that we're in, I think it's leaning much more right with um, groups like QAnon. Uh, it's really blown up to almost be a secondary Republican Party gotten so so popular um but that's not to say that i've certainly seen examples of more liberal minded people um using conspiracy theories especially it's it's really easy to believe something bad you hear about someone you don't like so it kind of uh, hits your gut reaction as being true 
So connecting those dots to see a pattern is a comforting way to make sense of the world. Uh, and in today's media landscape in particular, how have, have you seen the uh, rise of social media feed these theories even more? You have a whole chapter in your book on Alex Jones, and the FCC-friendly version of that chapter is Alex Effing Jones. But uh, what role has he and others like him played in um, the spreading of conspiracy theories in our modern uh, era where we have, uh, where, we, where people like Alex Jones don't have to rely on mainstream media outlets to reach millions of people. Alex Jones was, um, one thing that he, he had right was that he saw that the internet was going to be a big thing. And he's a little bit ahead of the curve on that. So InfoWars went online. That's his website? Uh, yes, uh, it went online very early. And he's been very um, successful in what he does. Uh, he's a millionaire. A lot of times when you see people peddling conspiracies, um, not the believers, but the people who are promoting them, it's because they have something to gain. So Alex Jones makes millions of dollars uh, selling products on his website like these kind of bunk dietary supplements. And in order to sell those, he needs people uh, to give him web traffic. And to do that, he's found that an effective way to do it is to kind of yell and scream about crazy stuff and um, you know, uh, blame everything bad going on in the world on people he doesn't like. Uh, but other people too. Uh, Trump knows the value of conspiracy theories. He uses them very much as a weapon against anyone that he doesn't like. Um, and we're even seeing a story about QAnon. It looks likely that the guy who runs 8chan is a website, uh, is possibly involved in creating some of this Q content. And uh, he's also the treasurer of a super PAC called Disarm the Deep State, which mm -hmm. funds uh, QAnon-aligned candidates. And one of the places that the super PAC advertises on is uh, HN. So it looks pretty much like this is a, a case of um, Peter robbing Paul. I mean, it's his own money that's circulating between these two sites. I don't want to get in more uh, to uh, QAnon in more detail because you do have a chapter in your book, even though your book, um, you know, you, you must have written it before QAnon became such a big force. Um, you know, it's there's there's now a congressional candidate who is likely to win her seat who identifies with the QAnon conspiracy movement. Uh, but staying on Trump and Alex Jones, um, what is the confluence between those two figures? And how have the two of them benefited one another, one gaining money and influence and the other one gaining political power and influence while, you know, peddling these uh, terribly destructive conspiracy theories? Yes. So, um, I mean, and this is just really shocking that this happened. But um, shortly after he announced that he was going to be a candidate for president, uh, one of the early media appearances he did was he went on the Alex Jones show on InfoWars. Um, and he did that at the suggestion of one of his advisors at the time, Roger Stone, who was a frequent InfoWars guest. And Trump really recognized the value of that. Um, 
You know, I don't think that it's just because of his uh, support from Alex Jones that he won, but he realized he needed to build a sort of coalition of conspiracy theorists and uh, racists and, you know, people who live in the suburbs that are afraid of the city. So Alex Jones has a very loyal, uh, loyal following, and he knew that there was some value of getting on their side. So, and of course, Alex Jones has um, benefited from this because he portrays himself as being this sort of fighter on the side uh, that's the right side, Trump's side. When conspiracy theories get debunked, why don't the peddlers of those theories also lose status. Uh, Alex Jones was one of the main promoters of the idea that the Parkland shooting, this horrific mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas School in Florida, uh, was a hoax. He was sued. He lost his suit. That should have been the end of his career. Yes. Um, so one thing I always say, it's, it's so difficult to argue with people who are deep into conspiracy theory because there's nothing you can really present to them that they'll, they won't brush off as being fake news or hoax, or you know they're willing to give the benefit of the doubt to Alex Jones. They're like, oh, sure, he might be wrong once in a while, but so is the mainstream media. So um, they're just very loyal to these beliefs and oftentimes to the people who got them hooked on these beliefs. So the uh, Pizzagate conspiracy was also one that was very seriously, um, you know, uh, was taken very seriously by millions of people, played a role in the 2016 election. Um, tell me about that conspiracy. And, and it seems to have some overlap with the QAnon theory because it involves this idea that there are child sex traffickers among us. <laughs> Yeah, Pizzagate was really sort of the test run for QAnon. Uh, what happened was WikiLeaks uh, released a lot of Hillary Clinton's emails that they had found. And people were studying those to find anything suspicious in them. So in those emails, they found that John Podesta, who was her uh, chief of staff for the campaign, uh, he was talking a lot about pizza and especially his favorite restaurant, Comet Ping Pong, which is sort of a quirky pizzeria in Washington, D.C. Uh, conspiracy theorists start to sort of branch together these different emails to paint this narrative that uh, top-level Democrats were actually going to Comet Ping Pong and ordering a pizza. I'm doing some air quotes here. But in reality, they were ordering a child sex slave. And it just kind of snowballed into this network where other nearby businesses were accused of being part of this. And anytime anyone was talking about pizza, it was seen as suspicious. Um, and it, it was very influential. A lot of people believe that Pizzagate is real to the point where in 2016, this man named Edgar Walt Welch, uh, you know, brought a gun and this is very uncanny in its similarity to the story I tell about Richard Caslin. He raided this pizza place because he thought he would be doing the right thing, which is saving these child sex slaves in this pizzeria. And of course, he didn't find anything except for uh, actual cheese pizzas, probably. 
And, uh, and then these beliefs sort of evolve into QAnon, where there is this shadowy figure who uh, says he's a government insider and he has these cryptic messages about how Trump is secretly working on this plan to bust up Pizzagate and other similar ideas. Okay, at the risk of um, insulting anybody uh, in my audience, don't these people realize what idiots they sound like? Um, I think that they sort of, they slowly adapt to this, where they might start small, just kind of entertaining conspiracy ideas, but it grows and it grows, and uh, some people, you know, a personality like Alex Jones can be very influential. He's seen by some people as being this sort of brave truth teller, a David versus Goliath, um, and his personality just appeals to some people, and they start believing uh, incrementally sort of crazier and crazier stuff. So is it also that they surround themselves with other believers? And so you know, we've heard of these uh, political bubbles that people live in. Usually liberals are accused of living in bubbles, and so we're unaware of what happens in the right wing. But aren't conspiracists also living in bubbles where they basically um, uh, you know, give each other the assurance that they're looking for, that they aren't crazy? Yes. Uh, so, I mean, one of the wildest things that happened to me while working on the book was I went to a flat earth conference in Dallas. And uh, I was not really a curious. joke. Right. Not they these no, they were not joking around at all. And I was very curious about some of these things that you just mentioned. Like how could someone possibly believe that the world is flat in this day and age? And I found it was a very much sort of a social circle. You know, they had kind of been interested in this weird idea and they started to bond online and they, um, you know, form this group that's sort of like a support group for them. It sounds wow. like church. Yes, exactly. Uh, very similar. And QAnon, I would say, is very similar in a lot of ways to a cult. Uh, they have this sort of charismatic leader who's Q and or Trump and uh, they really suspend a lot of disbelief um, you know, with all these ideas. And they form that sort of network and bond. You've been covering these issues for many years. Did you ever think that these conspiracies would become so widely believed that they would enter the mainstream political landscape? No, uh, even uh, as you mentioned, when I started writing about QAnon, um, I thought that it was going to kind of, you know, lurk on the dark corners of the internet. So I was very surprised when I began seeing the reports early this year of several candidates uh, running for office. Um, and like we mentioned, Marjorie Greene in, in Georgia uh, is pretty certainly going to be in the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, and that should be very concerning because she's opening the door for potentially others who will follow. And it might not just be QAnon, you know, it might be a flat earth party forms and stuff like that. So. I did not expect it to take this uh, direction, but 2020 has really been like the perfect brew of the pandemic and the 2020 election and uh, civil unrest. It's all contributing to this sort of fear and anger about what's going on. Uh, what is the relationship that you've found between uh, many of these conspiracy theories and their belief 
in science? I mean, we know that the Trump administration is openly rejecting science. Um, the, we see that with the coronavirus and, it's, and the handling of coronavirus. And yet there are times that I've noticed when in order to appear credible, conspiracy theorists invoke some kind of scientific background. For example, anti-vaxxers will have the doctors that they rely on, that they'll say, well, that's a physician, or the 9-11 truthers have the engineers that they rely on. Do they do they have uh, an approach that where they understand that science is important, but they only trust one or two so-called scientists because their theories match theirs? Bad science, really bad science. Hmm. Um, and as you were mentioning, you know, Trump is leading a terrible example. And uh, saw that he was saying that climate change was a hoax, uh, you know, in relation to all of the terrible fires on the West Coast. And that it's just so going to start cooling, but <laughs> no idea yeah. how. Yes. So uh, Trump says that he's got a brilliant scientific mind, but I haven't seen much evidence of that. So when you have leadership like that, it kind of trickles down, you know. Um, and yeah, the, the chapter where I went to the flat, I went to the Flat Earth Conference. I also talked about anti-vaxxers, and I'm sure I know that you have a, a scientific background. So it's just uh, very frustrating to see people kind of wanting to take a step backward into the dark ages, where they so believe that the world is flat and dinosaurs were a hoax, and all this stuff. And, and of course, a lot of this, uh, we think, has to do with looking for a way to make sense of a world that feels out of control, looking for community, you know, finding this sort of church-like atmosphere because you might feel isolated. But how, from from all the years that you've spent studying this, meeting people who really buy this stuff, um, how does one combat it? Is there talking sense to a conspiracy theorist. Can one convert a conspiracy theorist back to reality, or do you have to sort of treat it like you treat cults and cult members, where you just feed them enough information based on reality and hope they snap out of it at some point? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sad to say this, but I think a lot of people, when they get that deeply into conspiracy theory, it's, um, it's hard for them to come back from that. Uh, in my book, I tell the story of Richard McCaslin, and he really wasn't able to step back. From this is the Phantom Patriot, the, the real-life superhero who said he yeah. blew up the Bohemian Grove. Yeah. Right. And, um, you know, it's because any argument you can present to them, they'll say is fake. So how can you argue with someone like that? I mean, you can try, and I think you should try to um, talk to people about their beliefs, and maybe point out that their sources aren't good ones and try to understand maybe why they believe that. But it's very hard to talk them down. Um, one thing that I think could possibly help is I hope a lot, a lot of schools are looking into mandatory media literacy uh, classes or programs because there's so much misinformation and actual fake news out there that it's really hard to separate um, what a good source is from a bad source. Right. 
people will uh, you know well educated people will pass around so you know articles or media or website posts that look like news but they don't bother to check what the news source is they'll share memes without um, fact checking whether those memes are based on reality uh, and sometimes even if they are presented with articles or evidence from trusted sources they will dismiss them as fake news uh, oh you know the journalist is a Democrat. I was recently told by a person on my Facebook uh, page who I was trying to uh, having an argument with about whether President Trump was unleashing white supremacy. And she did some digging around and decided the journalist was a Democrat. Therefore, everything he wrote was fake news. And then you just have to sort of give up. But we can't give up. This is now our democracy is at stake. Yes, it's very frustrating and it can be overwhelming. And I see it daily. Uh, things like you're talking about, uh, memes and stuff that looks like it's legitimate news. And then you follow the link and you find out um, that it's just some far right website that has given them a name that sounds like it's kind of a, a newsy thing, but it's not. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Good luck to you with the book. Thank you so much. My guest has been T. Krulos, a freelance journalist and author, and we've been discussing his newest book, American Madness, the story of the phantom patriot and how conspiracy theories hijacked American consciousness. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com, where you can sign up for our daily newsletter, find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify. Rising Up with Sonali is hosted, written, and executive produced by Sonali Kolhatkar. Anna Bus is the producer, technical director, and web and social media supervisor. Our theme music is by Grammy award-winning band Kitsap. Like us on facebook.com slash ruwithsonali. That's the letters R-U with Sonali. And follow us on twitter.com slash ruwithsonali. Our website is risingupwithsonali.com where you can find all our programs archived and where you can get direct access to all our video and audio files. This is Takimba, the host of the Melting Pot Radio Show. During these crazy times of COVID and social distancing, KBU Radio and its connection to community are more valuable than ever. It's important to hear real news during the day that keeps